Good morning. There you go. So when Jesus started his ministry, some of the uh, very first words he said, his uh, thesis statement, if you will. Um, this mic is a little bit hot. Are you able to turn down this smidge? Sweet. Uh, it says, uh, just so I can be really loud on this. <laughs> it says, uh, the time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, I don't know about you, but I heard this a lot growing up. And uh, repent, the call to repent and, and something about good news don't really seem to go together. Right? The idea of like, hey, this is good news, but you need to change. Sounds kind of invasive to, <laughs> to my lifestyle, right? Whoa, that's supposed to be good news. It wasn't supposed to be calling me to something new. But uh, the key to this passage is the word kingdom. He's saying a new kingdom is on its way. In fact, it's here. He's talking about himself ushering in this new kingdom as King Jesus. He goes, a new kingdom is here. And what's interesting about that is if you had your own kingdom, and a new kingdom is on its way, is that good news or bad news? It's kind of bad news, right? You're like, a new kingdom is coming. Yay! No, you're like, a new kingdom is coming. Hide, everybody. Be quiet. I don't know. There'd be some fear going on right there, right? But this new kingdom is coming. It's good news because the new kingdom ushered in by King Jesus is better than the current kingdom. It's good news if the current kingdom that you're in is one where you're oppressed, one where you're uh, experiencing hardship, one where you're not actually free. And so this new kingdom coming in represents liberation and hope and newness. So it actually is good news. But we have the choice. Do we continue to rule ourselves as King James or King, King James, the Bible, right? King James, King Mark, King Esteban, King Danielle, Queen Danielle, whatever it is, right? Do we, we continue to rule ourselves Dave's like, yeah, queen. She's a queen. Right. Amen. Do we rule ourselves or do we let Jesus actually rule us and allow Jesus to play the role he's meant to play in our life, and that is to be king? You know, the title of today, which is a few slides away, is uh, Give Him Your Crown. Give Him Your Crown. We all have our own crown, our own way that we like to do things a way that we prefer, a lifestyle that we think is best for us. And the biggest message of being a Christian is letting Jesus be Lord, or rather letting Jesus be king of our lives. And that involves, it sounds really nice, until that means taking off your pretty crown. Right? I said, it's good to be the king. I like being the king. This is nice. But to give that up is what it takes to allow Jesus to serve as king and to be king and rule as king in our life. And guess what? He's a good king. He's a better king, a better ruler of our lives than we are. And that's why this new kingdom is actually good news. So my question for you this morning, something to reflect on as we dive into scripture here in just a moment, is this. Does your life show that you are part of a different kingdom? Does your life show that you are part of a different kingdom? I think sometimes in our Christianity, this was really obvious. Yes, I'm part of a different kingdom. But at other times in our followership of Jesus, we look more and more like the world around us and a little bit less distinct, less the aroma of Christ that Paul talks about, right? The stink of death. 
Okay, we don't want to stink necessarily, but there is this call to be different than the world around us, to adhere to a different set of principles and to be part of a different kingdom. But does your life reflect that? Think internally, you're here at church, you want to be part of a different kingdom, but does your life reflect that different kingdom? That's what we're going to look at today as we study out and dive into uh, the death of Jesus. We're going through the book of John, and, and we're gearing up right towards him dying on the cross. I was talking about this with the song leaders this morning. This passage that we're going to be reading, we don't normally preach. And if you've been around our church for a while, we love to study out the cross individually and talk about what the cross means. We love, and I appreciate it so much, the Tyree sharing the communion message. This is what the cross means to me. But we don't often talk about Jesus dying from the pulpit. I'm not sure if that's, hey, it's a little bit intense, or maybe it feels like, oh, well, we talk about that all the time. Or I, I'm not quite sure, but I'm really excited today to dive into to the death of Jesus and what it means for us. Let's pray, and then we'll start reading in the book of John. Father, thank you so much for the gift of the cross, for your sacrifice, for being a great king. Father, you are worth giving up our crown, laying down our crown, and letting you call the shots. Even when it's tough and uncomfortable, you are worthwhile, Father. I pray that we can be reminded of your kingship today, that we can see that you are a king that gives, you are a king that suffers, and a king that finishes. We love you in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're almost done with John. Can you believe it? But then we're going to do 1 John, 2 John, 3. So we're not fully done with John. But the book of John, we are almost done. Jesus, when he starts his ministry, he makes it clear that he came to seek and save the lost that by his wounds we would be healed. And last week, Sam did a great job illustrating that Jesus wants us to put our trust in him. That, that, and Sam did a great job looking at Peter and how Peter struggled to put his trust in Jesus. And yet Jesus put his trust in God. And that he, it's, he, he exemplifies that God is worthy of our trust. And uh, this is kind of a continuation of that, that he's worth not just our trust, but our followership as well and our submission to him and his will. All right, John chapter 18. Let's read together. And if you're thinking, hey, aren't we supposed to be on John chapter 19? We'll, we'll do 19 as well. We've got a lot of reading going on today for those keeping track. At this point, Jesus has been arrested, and he's on trial. And his trial's happening in the um, kind of, it's kind of a secret or a mock trial. It's not a real trial, so to speak. It's happening uh, basically below the law or above the law or whatever, not in accordance with the law. But he comes before Pilate, who's a governor, who's not Jewish at all, but he has uh, rulership over the Jewish people. So he's a governor in accordance with uh, Caesar's rule of Rome. And we'll pick up in verse, um, we'll pick up in verse 28 of John 18. It says this, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, to the palace of the Roman governor. Now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? 
Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again, and the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Chapter 19, let's keep reading. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him with a purple robe, and he went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in his face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the uh, Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to him, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answers, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he has claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Uh, lost my place there for a second. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a palace known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. He's really not getting it, right? There's this back and forth. Here's your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Whew, there's so much in here, so much back and forth. This is like a drama just written out, right? In a lot of ways, this is the Game of Thrones. You have Jesus, King Jesus, and, and the, the governor Pilate. You have Caesar, the throne. There's this drama back and forth. You know, when this is uh, shown in movies, it's done in, in nice British accents. You know, what is truth? I don't know what truth. You know, and they're going back and forth. It's just this dramatic piece that points to this idea of who's really calling the shots here. Who's really in control? Who's really king or leading this moment? You know, there's this banter back and forth. It's two, reader, uh, two leaders. And Pilate seems to be trying to figure it out. He's like, 
They're, they're calling you a king, or they're saying you claim to be king. Are you a king? And Jesus is essentially presenting himself as, I, I really am king of the Jews. I, I'm king of all. I'm king over you. I have power over you. And Pilate's like, okay, well, let me dress him up as a king, and we'll mock him as a king. And he's like, going back to the Jews, here's your king, and trying to kind of trigger them a little bit more into maybe just killing them himself. And he's trying to kind of play the crowd. It, it's just this fascinating uh, portrait of, is he king or not? Will, will Pilate really see him as a king or not? Will the people around him really see him as king or not? Later, we'll read about this in just a second, but when Jesus is finally crucified, they have a sign at the crucifixion. And the sign, Pilate has it written, here is the king of the Jews. And the Jews go back to Pilate, and they're like, don't write, here's the king of the Jews. We told you he's not our king, right? He claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, hey, what I've written, I've written. And so there's this aspect of he really is king, but everyone around him is trying to take away his kingship, take away Jesus' kingship, take away his crown, and let their own crown, crown call the shots in the moment. The crowd is furious. They don't want Jesus as their king. In fact, you hear what they shouted? The chief priests, the people that hate the Romans, they say, Caesar's our king. They would never say that in any other scenario. They hated Caesar. They wanted liberation from Caesar. They were not in compliance at all. But just to get their will done, they totally compromised in this moment. We love Caesar. Caesar's awesome. Yeah, Caesar. Now let us kill Jesus. They, they totally cave on their morals and their principles because they want their will to be done and not God's in this moment. Then, of course, they, they drag the, the soldiers drag Jesus out and they put this crown of thorns on top of his head. They weave together this crown of thorns. Thorns in this area were probably about this long. Other passages or accounts of this talk about them beating him over the head, driving these thorns into his head, causing excruciating pain. Then it writes about him being flogged, being beaten over and over again. You know, a flog was this leather whip that had uh, animal bone and pieces of pottery and shards of, of glass most likely in it, and it would have been driven into Jesus' back as he lay tied over a stump or hanging from a rafter. And he was, he was hit uh, most likely 39 times. It was called the 40 minus 1 because it was estimated 40 times would kill a man. So let's get him as close to death as possible. And so Jesus is bl bloody and suffering. And then they go and put this robe on him, on his back, that's already in ribbons. And they put this robe on and press it against him. Later they're going to take it back off, like ripping off a Band-Aid or a, um, you know, a scab off of a wound. And he's suffering and he's drawn out. He's being mocked. They're, they're pretending to pay homage to him, to bow down to him as a king. And the irony of all of this is that he is a king, that he created those thorns, that he created the, the, the color purple, right, that, that's going to be on that robe that's on his back. He is the king. He should be worshipped. But here he's being worshipped and mocked in the process. He actually is king and he's suffering. He says in this moment, he goes, hey, you Pilate, you wouldn't have power if I didn't give it to you. I'm, you, you guys are my pawns here. We're, we're moving it around to, to fulfill the, the destiny that is I'm supposed to die for the sins of all people, including you, by the way. That's what's happening here. And he's saying, you, the only power you have, I've given you. Jesus is the king. Give him your crown. He's meant to be king. You know, for me, I relate so much to Pilate in this story. Pilate is just, just going back and forth, pulled in two different directions, trying to figure out wh which group of people to satisfy, who to make happy in this scenario. 
in one of the other um, passages or one of the other gospel messages, his wife says, hey, don't have anything to do with him. So he's also like, how do I make my wife happy in this? How do I make Caesar happy? How do I deal with the Jewish leaders? And then on top of all of it, I don't think Jesus is actually guilty. That's what Pilate's going through. And so he's just tossed back and forth. And he's kind of trying to make Jesus who he wants Jesus to be. Hey, just say that you're this or just do this and you can get it. He's trying to make Jesus into something Jesus is not to fit his own desires and his own will and to save his own skin and to make his life a little bit easier. That's really easy for me to do, to kind of craft Jesus into whoever I want him to be so that my life is a little bit easier. I I can relate to this, especially in the form of trying to make people around me happy, trying to satisfy the crowds around me, trying to please people around me. In, um, when I was in college, it's a little bit embarrassing to say, I would, I would walk around from class to class, and I would count how many people said hi to me without me initiating. Just say, okay, my, my big man on campus. I don't know what's more embarrassing, that I did that or that not that many people said hi to me. Right? But I, I just, uh, it's so in my sinful nature to have just a, a bloated view of myself and, and to, to really look to people to make me feel better about who I am. And you see that Pilate's trying to do that a little bit, but he's willing to compromise on who Jesus actually is. The crowd is willing to compromise on who Jesus really is to fit their own desire, to make themselves feel better. The question for us is, in what ways do you try to fit Jesus, squeeze him into your life instead of surrendering to his will for your life? Right? We kind of compartmentalize who Jesus is. Right? Okay, I do the church thing on a Sunday or when I can I do my Bible reading when somebody asks me about it. Or I, I, I live for God or try my best this way or that way. But there's not this aspect that Jesus should have rulership over every aspect of my life. He, he, by the way, does have dominion over every aspect of my life. It's whether or not I choose to acknowledge that. We're called to be willing to acknowledge that Jesus truly is the king. And by the way, he's king. The truth is he's king whether we acknowledge it or not. He, he's king, he's, you know, well, Pilate didn't recognize it. He's still king. The, the, the guards are beating him. He's still king. It's not like because they fail to recognize him as king, he's no longer king. Just because we don't believe or sometimes we compartmentalize our faith doesn't give, doesn't take away any dominion that Jesus actually is supposed to have and does have in our lives. He is king whether we acknowledge it or not. My, uh, we sing this song for our family devotionals or in Kids Kingdom. You might have sung this with the kids. Goes, who's the king of the jungle? Who's the king of the sea? Bubble, bubble, bubble. Who's the king of the universe? And who's the king of me? And then the kids go, his name is J E S U S. Yes. And he keeps singing. But uh, Jack is getting really good at spelling. And so we'll point to my son, who's seven, and we'll say, his name is. And Jack goes, J E S U S. Like, yeah, you did. You know, and we keep singing the song. But Anna really wants to do it too. So. It comes her time, and she's four. She's not good at spelling, but his name is, and she'll, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't know the right letters. She just has the excitement and zeal, and that's awesome. And, and what I have to say is that he's King Jesus whether you can spell it or not. Right? He's King Jesus whether we acknowledge it or not. Whether we appreciate his rulership or not, he is the ruler. Whether we like it, whether we agree with the teachings of the Bible or not, he is still king. Whether we're interested, whether we believe, whether we agree, whether we like it, it doesn't matter. He is king. And in one context, that can be overwhelming and scary. Okay, whoa, he's king. But in another aspect, when we appreciate his kingship, it's a wonderful thing. That regardless of of how good I'm doing or not good I'm doing, he is still king. He is still king. He is a good king. 
is a king that loves us, that sacrifices for us. It's good news that he is our king. I uh, had a Bible study this week with somebody who's wrestling with deciding whether or not they want to get baptized, to commit to Jesus, to follow him, to grow in their faith, all those things. He's wrestling with it. And uh, what he's wrestling with is some of the teachings are like, man, this is, this is how I saw my life going in this direction, and I want this and this and this and this. But I see very clearly, by the way, in the, in the Bible, that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give up this, 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 and this. And it's going to look very different than the trajectory that I saw my life going. And praise God he's recognizing that, right? But on, on a side note, if we just say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what, but don't really count the cost or think through what does that really look like, our followership of Jesus doesn't really look like a biblical one. It just looks like a cultural one or one that kind of fits our lifestyle, kind of like Pilate in the story. So he's wrestling with it, and I say, okay, it's true. We could talk through why does Jesus command this and why does this, sure. And we could talk about this and that and what does this look like and it's not as bad as it looks like, you know, all this stuff. Or we can say, okay, but whether or not you like it or not, he's still king. And he's a good king. If you trust Jesus, if you trust who Jesus is, if you're like, hey, that's the guy I want to be my king, it doesn't matter what he's calling you to because you trust the character of the king that's leading your life. And so in the story, there's this call to let Jesus be king, but there's also this idea that Jesus is a great king. He's a king I want to follow. He's a king that I want to rule my life. He is the king of the universe, and he's also, by the way, the king that I want and trust over or with my life, to rule over my life. It's kind of like the first Captain America movie. You guys remember, this is like ages ago, ancient, ancient, years ago, Avengers. Um, Captain America is kind of this scrawny kid who's been recruited to a, uh, a military training operation. They're trying to see who should get this special super soldier serum to get the Captain America powers. And they're like, okay, this guy's really strong, and this guy's really good at this, this, and this. But they're looking for kind of that X factor. What does this person have? And uh, the guy who's, who's running the course, Tommy Lee Jones, he pulls out a grenade, or a fake grenade, rather, rolls it onto the ground, and everybody scatters except Steve Rogers, Captain America. You know, spoiler alert. He jumps on top of the, uh, of the grenade and tells everybody to get away. And he's ready to sacrifice himself for everybody else around him. And they go, that's the guy we want. That's the guy we want to lead us. When you see those qualities, you're like, yes, that, that's what I want to follow. That's what we need. That's what I desire. And that's what Jesus, to a much grander scale, by the way, is doing right here in the crucifixion. He goes, I will fall on the grenade. I will die for your sins so that you can live. And we look at that and we should say, yes, that's what I want. That is the king I want to follow. And when there's things that that king is calling me to that I don't like or that confuse me or are overwhelming, so be it because I see his character and who he is and the love he has for me and the sacrificial life and death that he gave for me. So we're going to read a little bit more and then I want to tell you a little bit about my king and encourage you hopefully to, uh, to grow in your own love of our king together. All right, in John 19, let's pick up a little bit more in verse 17. You guys still with me? Told you a lot of reading today. All right, verse 17, 16b. It says, So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. 
and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews uh, protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood the mother, his mother's sister, stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, and so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had finished the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So we're getting here into the death of Jesus. As he carries his own cross, uh, a cross beam in, in another gospel, it says he, he, he didn't have even the energy or the strength to carry it himself. And these other individuals start to carry it. And those individuals later become followers of Jesus, carrying both a physical cross in this moment and then a metaphorical cross to, to the end of their life, which is pretty amazing. But he's carrying this cross, and he's up, uh, he's up there. They would have nailed, not in his, his um, palm as we often think, but most likely right here, right through the median nerve. I'm not trying to get graphic necessarily, but, but there's a reason this is in all four Gospels. There's a call of this is his sacrifice. And so the nails would have been driven in right here. And then his legs most likely would have gone kind of on either side of the, uh, the lower cross beam and had one, one nail on his right ankle and one on his left. And Jesus would have hung there on the cross. And the... the, the horrific aspect of the cross was that a person died on the cross through suffocating. It wasn't through blood loss. It wasn't through uh, starvation necessarily. It was just they no longer had the strength to pull themselves up to breathe. And so every time he had to breathe, he would have to put stress on this nerve here and on his feet to push up and to get that breath to drag his, uh, his back, which, by the way, had been flogged, up this piece of wood, getting more splinters, getting cut up, and just suffering. And it wasn't for a moment. It was for this long period of time, for hours, that he was up there, a spectacle to those around him. And that was purposeful, by the way. This was how Jesus said it needs to be fulfilled so that the whole world will know and will see that this is how much God loves them. That this is how much your king is willing to go through to, to call you, to let him rule you, to call you into his kingdom. You know, three things I want to point out here. He's a giving king. In this moment where he's suffering, what does he do? <coughs> he takes care of his mom. He, he could think about a billion other things. But he looks at, at his, his mom and he looks at his friend, and he goes, hey, to his, to his friend, he goes, this is your mother now. Basically saying, take care of my mom. 
what, what an incredible person Jesus is and was in this moment, that he's thinking of others. Later, the, the thieves on his left and his right, or the rebels on his left and his right, they're, they're bickering, they're challenging, and one says, hey, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus could be like, hey, I'm a little preoccupied right now. I can't deal with this. But he says, no, I will remember you. And he's sharing the gospel with the guy dying on, on his side. He's a giving king. He gave his life, but in this moment here at the crucifixion, he is giving to those around him. He's giving of himself. By his wounds, we are healed. I'll tell you about my king. My king is a giving king. My king is also a suffering king. <coughs> he suffers in this moment. He's flogged. He's mocked. He's crucified. You know, not just the physical pain, but to me, the, the biggest challenge here is that his enemies think that they're winning. You know, they think, we got him. Is this, is this your king? No, he's nothing. We got him. He's going to die. We win. And, and Jesus has to continue to take that. And they shout in other gospels, they shout, hey, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. And if I was Jesus, I wouldn't have made it this far. But if I happened to make it this far, that would be my moment to jump down from the cross and say, okay, let's dance. Now you believe me, right? Okay, let's, let's let. But no, he remains on the cross, not just taking the physical pain, but the mental and emotional pain of being mocked and criticized. And again, his biggest enemies thinking that they are winning and that he's losing in this moment that he is giving of himself. Save those very people mocking him. He is a suffering king. <clears throat> he's also a finishing king. Let me tell you about my king. He is a king that gets the job done. He gets the job done. He completes the task. He came to seek and save the lost, and he's doing it right here in the cross. If he gives up, if he doesn't actually die and pay the penalty of our sin, we have no hope. And so Jesus remains on the cross, and he actually dies. He experienced separation from God because our sin comes on him, and he finishes the job. You know, there's two things that John has written that Jesus says while on the cross at the very end. One might seem out of place. He goes, I'm thirsty. And there's a reason for that. And that was at this time, the, the critics of the uh, message of Jesus were believing that Jesus actually never existed physically, that he was just kind of a ghost or a spirit, and so that he wasn't actually physical and that he didn't actually physically die. And John is writing to say, no, he was physical. Look, he's thirsty. <laughs> And if you read the whole gospel account, there's times where he says, I'm thirsty or I'm hungry or food you don't know anything about. He's just like, I'm hungry. <laughs> he was physical or he slept or different things like that. And they're pointing out his whole humanity. He's a real person suffering in this moment. He's thirsty. But then the other thing that John thought was important to have written down is him saying, it is finished. It is finished. The Greek word here is tetelastai, uh, tetelastai. I meant to have it on the slide, but I don't. You can ask me for the spelling later if you want it. But it's this beautiful word that actually comes from uh, the world of, of debt and owing money. And back in the Greek culture, Roman culture, if you owed somebody money, you had to make payments and make payments and make payments. And then finally, this deed that represented all that you owed would get stamped. It is finished. Tetelestai. That word would say, the debt has been paid in full. You no longer owe on this debt. 
And what does Jesus say from the cross? It's finished. Paid in full. The price has been paid. You, you are forgiven. You, the, the gift of my grace is now made available to everyone. It is finished. Paid in full. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 says this. You can just listen. He says, But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all at the culmination of all ages to make himself, uh, to do away with sin by sacrificing himself. We have a good king, a king that says, it is finished, who offers us this, this complete faith that we don't have to wrestle, by the way, that when we're in Christ, we don't say, oh, am I having a good day? Is Jesus' sacrifice good enough for me today? Am I too bad? No, we, we can have full confidence when we're in Christ that he has made us new, that it is finished in him. It has come to completion. It is paid. My debt is paid in full. He's a giving king. He's a suffering king. He's a finishing king. He gets the job done. Do you live like Jesus is your king? Does your life look like you're part of a different kingdom? <coughs> what areas might you be uh, being called to this morning by the Holy Spirit to give up your crown? Right? If, uh, what I can wrestle with is, okay, yeah, Jesus is Lord until it's too uncomfortable. Then I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put my own crown back on. No, Jesus is Lord. I'll take this off for a little bit. But then it gets a little bit tough, or this is, this is a tricky situation. Let me call the shots. Let me get in control again. And it's this back and forth. Instead of throwing our crown down, letting it shatter, and saying that Jesus is king no matter what, because he's a good king. Does your life look like you're part of a different kingdom? Does your life look like you're part of God's kingdom? And as a practical, I don't have much. It's just what can you do? One thing you, can you do this week? where it's clear that Jesus is your king, right? If you were to live like, more like Jesus is your king, what's one thing that might be different this week? I want to conclude here. We're about to stand up and sing a song. We'll, uh, right after this, we'll stand, we'll sing Lion of Judah, which Lion is the, the king of the jungle, right? Lion of, of Judah is a, a symbol of who Jesus is, that he is worthy of our praise, the, in, in the Lion of Judah as well, the lineage of Judah. Uh, we're going to sing that song, but before that, I'm going to share a poem one of my favorites, I know Dave likes this one a lot as well, it's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. And uh, basically it's this poem written that just, I think, encapsulates what it's like to live with Jesus as your king. A mindset that says, okay, he is a good king and he is my king. So I'm going to share this and then we'll stand and sing a song together. It says, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and down with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need prominence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. 
I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, and prayed up, and paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work until he stops. When he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My king will be clear. Let's stand together and sing Lion of Judah.